This episode of Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher is brought to you by Visit Loudon, the tourist office for DC's wine country. Visit Loudon invites you to DC's wine country, a mere 30 miles from the nation's capital. Loudon is the Napa Valley of the Mid-Atlantic. Home to more than 40 wineries, Loudon's vineyards provide views of everything from the lush rolling hills of the Virginia countryside to the soaring slopes of the Blue Ridge Mountains. With fire pits, outdoor patios, and acres of open land perfect for vineyard picnics, Loudon's wineries are ready to welcome you at any time of year to enjoy award-winning Viognier, Cab Franc, Merlot, Norton, and Bordeaux blends. My favorite. There's more than just drinking wine when you come to visit DC's wine country. Take part in unique experiences such as vineyard hikes paired with personal tasting kits, sangria making classes, and special wine pairing dinners. And if you enjoy the day, listen, why not stay longer? Dine in superb restaurants or check into one of the boutique B&Bs or luxury resorts and make a weekend of it. Joan and I have, and we've had a ball. To start planning your trip to DC's wine country, check out visitloudon.org. That's V-I-S-I-T-L-O-U-D-O-U-N.org. And now back to the show. We've been taking a lot of trips to um, Portugal recently, in the Alentejo, which is just east of um, Lisbon. It's about 45 minutes outside of Lisbon. Um, Portugal is a very tiny country, so you can get most of the country, um, you know, within an hour or two, and they have a great train system as well. But we'll do a day trip uh, a couple times out of Lisbon, um, go into the Alentejo and drink some wonderful wines. Um, and Portugal is really good in that they're doing a lot of um, native grapes. And so there are a lot of things that, you know, people may not have heard of. It's not going to be your Chardonnay or your Cabernet Franc or, or Cab Sauve. Um, and there's going to be now, you know, Tinta, uh, Reese, you know, so other types of, of grapes that you may not have heard of, um, but are very good and still flying under the radar to a lot of Americans, I think. This is Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher, a podcast that shines a light on the best winemakers, craft brewers, and spirit distillers in the DMV. So grab a glass of your favorite adult beverage. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and let's get started. Thank you, Asia. Hello and welcome to Barrel Tasting. I'm Howard Fletcher. And today I'm going to do something a little bit different. We're going to be talking about wine, of course. But on today's show, I'm going to talk to a gentleman who knows a whole lot more about wine than I do. And he's in the business of traveling with wine enthusiasts to some of the finest wine producing regions of the world to help them learn more about and expand their appreciation of the grape juice that we all love. But first, I'm going to ask you in advance this time to please subscribe and rate the podcast if you've not done so already. We're going by leaps and bounds and subscribing and rating the pod helps us get the word out about the craft beverage culture in the DMV and you know how important that is to me. So please, please subscribe. Now back to the matter at hand. My guest today is John Sporing. He is owner of A Life Well Drunk and I love that name. And he's the creator and host of Wine Uncensored, which you can catch on YouTube. Please check it out, great videos. Building on his passion for wine, travel, and teaching, John founded A Life Well Drunk. Now, what is that? Well, like I described earlier, he regularly hosts wine tours around the world. Recently, these tours have included South Africa, Portugal, as well as some domestic destinations in California and Oregon. John is a certified specialist of wine, known as a CSW. He's also WSET certified, that's the Wine and Spirit Education Trust, 
and he continues to work on his diploma in wine and spirits. That's called a DWS. So as you can see, he's well-credentialed and he knows what he's talking about. And so that is why I thought he was somebody that you guys should meet. Now we had this conversation over the internet where I'm still having a few audio challenges, but it's getting better. Please bear with me. I wanna bring you this content in. In these days of COVID, this is the best way to do it in most cases. So with no further ado, here's my conversation with John Sporing of A Life Well Drunk. Let's all raise a glass. All right, well, I have John Sporing here on the show. And John, I wanna thank you for agreeing to come on the show. Thank you for asking. Yeah, yeah, we have a mutual friend, uh, Dorothy Vaccaro over at Boxwood uh, in Middleburg. And uh, she said, you have to have this guy, friend of mine, John, on the show. And that usually that's all it takes because I listen to what Dorothy tells me. But, you know, she, you know, she told me that you, you know, that you're, you're a wine uh, expert, a wine specialist. And uh, I certainly can use all of the, uh, <laughs> the information I can get because I certainly am not a wine specialist. I am just a wine lover. If I'm not mistaken, you are the CEO and chief taster of your business, A Life Well Drunk. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. Okay, well, tell us how you got here. How did this all happen? Uh, well, um, like uh, most people, I had a, a full-time day job that I was working, and um, I started thinking about, well, what do I want to do when I retire? You know, I, um, I, was, um, I was working for the Fed for 25 odd years or so, um, and I knew that I wanted to retire. Um, and do something different. Um, I'm a trained economist, so statistician. So I worked with numbers and data and, you know, all that very technical, geeky number stuff. Wow. Right? After 25 years of doing that, I decided, well, I should do something different. So I'm trying to figure out, well, what do I like to do besides numbers? And of course, I still do a lot of numbers, even with this business, but it's on my own geekiness. So, um, but I found out I like wine. Um, I like teaching and I also like travel. So I tried to figure out, well, how can we put this together so that I get to do a little bit of everything? And uh, we came up with um, A Life Well Drunk, which is an eno-tourism company. So um, we take people across the globe on bespoke tours, um, usually no more than eight to 10 persons. And we go um, drink wine and eat good food around the world. That sounds good. Let me go back to what I said you are before. You're a certified wine specialist. What exactly does that mean? And what did you have to do to become, to have that title? So the, the certified specialist of wine, uh, CSW, is granted by the Society of Wine Educators. Um, and so it's, uh, it's an exam. You sit for an exam and you have to answer all these questions and, you know, you have to get a passing rate and, and everything on that. Um, so that one is is a pure knowledge um, exam. I also have my WSET Advanced, um, which in that one, again, it's it's even more knowledge, um, but there's also tasting in there where you got to do blind tastings and identify certain wines and, and, you know, certain notes in the wines, you know, that kind of thing that you see on all those TV shows and everything. Uh -huh. But I try to be very careful to keep it that, yes, I have these certifications because I wanted to learn more about wine. Um, and I'm not necessarily always good learning on my own, you know, sitting with a book and reading it through, you know, so sometimes, right. you know, okay, I wrote a check to this class. So I'm going to go every week and I'm going to learn, you know, that's a little more incentive on, on my side. But now, you know, I have the knowledge, but I, I think it's, 
it's more so that when, when guests travel with us, I can help them learn more about wine. I, I don't want to be that guy, you know, everybody's looking at the parties like, oh, you know, don't let him try that wine because he's not going <laughs> to like it or anything like that. You know, I, I will try just about any kind of wine out there. And I, I probably have tried just about every kind of wine out there. Um, and I enjoy it. And I, I think wine is meant to be enjoyed. It's not meant to be, you know, um, up in the, you know, I'm trying to say hidden away, right? That uh-huh. only the special people can have it and everything. And and yes, pricing sometimes keeps some of those bottles away from most of us. But I mean, there's a wine out there that everybody can afford and one that everybody will like. So when, and I, I wanted to get all of that out and you, you segued me right into where I wanted to go is, you know, before we talk about wine specifically, because I do want to ask you about certain wines and definitely local wine, um, wine tasting. You on your uh, business, you go on these trips to wine regions worldwide. Please correct me if I, I got any of this wrong. I haven't been, uh, I haven't gone on one of these trips yet, but you will see me. I haven't been on one in a year, so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I know, I, you know, I imagine that some of the people on the trip maybe. Not all of them, but some of the people, maybe most of the people on the trip are what you might call novice wine drinkers or, or people who just maybe just have a, an interest in wine, but don't necessarily, didn't necessarily study it or, or even cultivate their palate to a point where they're tasting particular notes. They just know what they like. So when you sit down with them and they start, you, you go to a particular vineyard and you're tasting what they have to offer, um, how do you go about explaining to them or educating them? or enhancing that that experience? Usually, even before we go on the trip, I'll, I'll try to get to know the people a little bit. Um, you know, if they're local to the DC area, we'll get together for, you know, a glass, a bottle, three of wine, and find out, um, you know, what they're drinking. You know, do they like this? Do they not like that? What kind of styles do they like? You know, do they drink beer? Do they drink spirits? Do they drink coffee? All those kind of things can give me insight into what kind of wines they may like. Uh-huh. Um, you know, they only drink sweet wines, right? You know, a Moscato's everything. So, you know, that gives me a clue on how I can then move them into other styles of wine. And when we when we're out traveling, when we're at a, at a winery, you know, I watch people's expressions. You know, again, since it's only about eight of us there, I can watch what everybody's doing. And they're like, oh, I don't like this wine, you know. Um, just because, you know, it's not necessarily a bad wine, right? If you don't like a wine, you just don't happen to like that wine. doesn't mean it's a bad wine, um, but it just means that you didn't like that particular style. So I try to keep mental note and sometimes even write these down so that um, at the end of the day, when we get back to the hotel and we're preparing for the next day, I may call my local guide and say, you know what, Howard, he really liked that one Syrah that we had. So can we go tomorrow and try some other Syrahs in that same region so he can, you know, we can try to help him develop his style. And um, and then also part of the education, you know, is walking through the wineries and sitting there with the winemakers and learning about barrels, learning, you know, we'll go out to the vineyards and look at their grapes and, you know, how are they, um, how they planted, you know, what, you know, is the irrigation, what's the crop going in between. So all that kind of stuff, just a little bit of education bit by bit. And you've been in wine long enough to know that, you know, once, once you kind of start down that wine path, it just kind of continues to suck you in. Right? Yeah. So. Yeah. I was mentioning to somebody on a, on a, on a show a little the other day that uh, once I got into wine, uh, I never really thought about whether in the context of farming locally, 
you know, but now if it gets too hot or we have a freeze when it's, you know, in the, in the early spring or something, I, uh, I think about grapes. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll send an email off to Dorothy or some of my other friends like, did you lose anything? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or if it, you know, rains too much, you're like, oh, no. Um, well, as you, as you know, the purpose of this podcast, and I say all the time on here, is really to highlight the winemaking that's going on in the uh, the DMV, in the Washington metropolitan area, in the Mid-Atlantic, because I think it's uh, becoming some of the, you know, best in the nation and uh, approaching, you know, certain wines the world. And uh, I really want to highlight that. But, and, and you're, you know, you're more of a worldwide uh, guy, you know, you, you, take people all over the world. So I am going to pick your brain a little bit about world uh, uh, global wine, which is something that uh, we never talk about on this show. And I'm probably going to ask you questions that are going to have a lot of answers, like it depends, <laughs> or there are no answers, but I'm going to ask them anyway. So that's so my economics background. It's like, yeah. well, it depends. <laughs> yeah. So if you could take somebody, I'm going to go through four particular types of wines. If, if you have somebody who's like a red drinker and you had a to transport them anywhere in the world to 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 check out a particular type of red they, they're just familiar with local what they've been drinking locally and in california say california doesn't count or oregon <laughs> where would you take them in the world where would you you know think hey this is a good place to take this person and because they probably haven't tasted a red like this before so you know one other little thing that um i guess i didn't really mention is that you know when we do our, our travels i do believe the local culture helps tremendously to help you understand the wine, right? So, you know, you if I pop you down in the middle of France, you know, I, you need to understand where that wine's coming from, what kind of foods are they eating with it and all that. So, um, so because of that, I would, uh, we've been taking a lot of trips to um, Portugal recently in the Alentejo, which is just east of um, Lisbon. It's about 45 minutes outside of Lisbon. Um, Portugal is a very tiny country, so you can get most of the country, um, you know, within an hour or two and have a great train system as well. But we'll do a day trip uh, a couple of times out of Lisbon, um, go into the Alentejo and drink some wonderful wines. Um, and Portugal is really good in that they're doing a lot of um, native grapes. And so there are a lot of things that, you know, people may not have heard of. It's not going to be your Chardonnay or your Cabernet Franc or, or Cab Sauve. Um, and there's going to be Trigo Nacional, you know, Tinta. Reese, you know, so other types of, of grapes that you may not have heard of, um, but are very good and still flying under the radar to a lot of Americans, I think, um, which means they're also very reasonably well priced um, when you can find them, you know, because it's not a Bordeaux first growth. So not everybody knows about it. So not everybody's buying it. So therefore, you know, the price points are still very good. So so I would say Alentejo for a red. Okay. All right. Well. You know where I'm going next. I'm going to go to white. What, where would you go for, for white? White. Um, well, we just, um, on the season, on our first season of, of Wine Uncensored this year, we've had some wonderful whites on. And there are two regions that I'm especially interested in, in getting back to. Um, one is the Rias Baixas, which is um, Spain, northwest Spain, above Portugal, that little piece above Portugal. Uh -huh. um, for the Albariños, um, some great acidic, crisp wines, um, pairs well with seafood, um, light to drink. Uh, we had some with our turkey at Thanksgiving because it pairs well with turkey as well. Um, 
And then the other region is going to be South Africa. Um, the Shannon Blancs coming out of there um, are just world class. Um, and then even the, the Sauvignon Blancs are, are coming up, you know, and I think um, both of those are, especially Shannon, if you're a new wine drinker, Shannon is a very approachable um, wine um, and it's it's nice and crisp and it goes well with everything and it goes well with nothing as well. If you just want to sit and have a glass, it's it's a wonderful one to have. So yeah, as I mentioned before we got started, you know I just finished watching. I didn't get through the whole thing, but I watched. Uh, you do a series of, of videos on YouTube, uh, Wine Uncensored, and if you're a you know if you're kind of a wine geek or, or you like to know about where stuff is growing and uh, worldwide and you know, about the wine. I think it's, it's a great series. And uh, I watched the uh, the one with from South Africa, the Rots uh, Winery, Family Winery, I believe that's their name. And they, you know, I guess they grow Chenin Blanc and Cab Franc. And I'm a Cab Franc guy. I mean, that's, that's ah. the Bordeaux red that I really like. And um, I was really intrigued by that because I was like, wow, I wonder what that that Cab Franc tastes like as opposed to the Cab Franc that I'm familiar with, which is mostly grown in Virginia uh, that I've been drinking recently. Where is there locally, are those wines uh, uh, available locally? Uh, the Rot family wines? The Rot family, uh, they should be available certainly in DC. Um, okay. You have, you know, uh, most of the wines we get on our show are going to be available at, at the smaller wine shops. Um, I don't remember if Arrow Wine in Virginia carries it or not, yeah. um, but I can certainly find out for your folks if you want and see where it's available. So yeah, yeah, and I imagine maybe you can go to the, the website. All right, yeah, the Chenin Blanc. I was, uh, I don't know, you know, I, it, part of me, you know, I, I have a lot of revisionist memory, so I, I don't know, but part of me wants to feel say that I've had it before. But the more they discussed it on your video, <laughs> maybe not. I don't know. But uh, they definitely, you know, I was, you know, kind of drooling a little bit, wanting to taste along with you on that video. And I will definitely. It was really good. I got to tell you that. So, um, I mean, most of Chenin Blanc, um, it's probably people know it more from the Loire Valley in, in France, uh -huh. um, even though South Africa grows more of it now. Um, the Loires, where kind of it got its start, right? And, mm. you know, the, the Huguenots, when they came down from France to, to help settle um, South Africa, brought some of the Chenin with them. And so that's, you know, that's where it's grown now. And, and it comes in so many different styles there. It's just mm -hmm. unbelievable. So mm -hmm. I'm going to go back to Portugal real quick. When you met, or actually Spain, the northwest part of Spain, we talked about the Albarino. They've been growing within the last five, six years, some in Virginia. I've been drinking that. I, I really mm -hmm. like that. How would that compare on the tongue to that uh, Spanish uh, that you mentioned? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I've had a couple of the Virginia ones. Um, there's a couple out of California as well. I still find the, the ones from Rios Baixas from, from Spain to be crisper almost, you know, and there's, there's a little salinity into it because it is grown right on the coast as well. Um, and while there's no salt in wine, as you know, there may be salt on the grapes at harvest, which kind of gets put through the process. So you can kind of get that, you know, touch of salinity on there. You know, so especially if you're having shellfish or, or something like that, you know, it's, it's a great pairing. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the Spanish one is just a little, a little bit lighter and crisper mm -hmm. um, with a little bit more acidity to it. So, um, you know, it, it's great for the, for, you know, in DC on these, 
hot, sticky summertime evenings when you're out on the deck, you know, waiting for the sun to set. It's like, okay, I can have a glass of Albarino and help cool you down. So, yeah. And even the ones from Virginia are still going to give you that kind of crisp acidity, even for those hot, sticky nights in DC. Yeah, they are. But, you know, it just makes sense. Something that I had to uh, come, you know, learn through experience is just how much wine is tied to the soil, to the terroir. And it's just, only makes sense that they're going to taste different, you know, because they're in grown in different parts of the world on the planet. You know, it's just going to be a different wine, even though it might be the same grape. And we have um, a couple of tasting groups that, you know, we'll do, we used to be every other month or so, you know, I would bring in, maybe I would bring in eight different Albarinos from across the globe. Right. Hmm. And then we would, you know, can you, can you tell me which one is Rios Baches, which one is Virginia, which one is, you know, wherever. And so, it's always fun to do those kind of blind tastings just to see. So you can tell the difference between a, a Napa Valley Cabernet Sauve and a Virginia Cabernet Sauve and a, and a Bordeaux Cab Sauve. You know, it's they're similar, you know, but not quite there, right? So now I'm gonna. Well, the other two I was gonna ask you about. We don't even have to go there. One one was the that was rosé. Here's the question I have you for about rosé because I used to like just shun rosé. Because it was the ones that I was familiar with were the sweeter rosés, and and you know now you're getting more dry, or maybe it was always around, but I wasn't aware of it. But there's more dry rosé coming into the market, and certainly being lo uh, produced locally. Is there? I know it's become quite popular in the United States. Extremely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that? Uh, do you know whether that's been? Is that a worldwide thing, or is that just an American thing? You know, has it? Has it? Well, it's. I think the rest of the world has always drank rosé, uh, right? Um, I think in the U.S. it kind of got branded as, you know, a feminine drink, right? You know, and, you know, so there's been all this big push to get real men drink rosé, you know. Yeah. We go to, um, we were in Sweden on vacation, not on a tour, but we were in Sweden. And I think um, Sweden is the number one per capita consumer of rosé. You know, th their summer is like, you know, a month, right? <laughs> and so... Um, and everywhere you go, people are just drinking bottles of rosé, you know, and, you know, my friends in Europe who have who have um, wineries, they said, yeah, we just ship every rosé we can to the Scandinavian countries and they just consume it all in those, you know, six weeks or so of summer that they have. Because, you know, as the, the minute the temperature gets high, you know, everybody takes off from work and just lays out in mm -hmm. the big parks and they have their their bottles of rosé laying around and. So I think there, you know, there's some beautiful rosés out there, um, but I think the U.S. is now just becoming more attuned to them, um, and the U.S. winemakers are also beginning to, to create them. Um, you know, it's um, I had a phenomenal one from Turley this year. It was actually um, a white Zinfandel, which you know, those of us of a certain age remember when white Zinfandel was this really sweet drink um and it was actually my gateway my gateway drug into wine was my oh, white zinfandel yeah um but you know they sent me this white zinfandel i'm like uh, i'm not really into white zins that much anymore but i'll try it but it was bone dry and crisp and delicious so i'm waiting for the new vintage to come out so yeah yeah that was my that was my college bottle for the for the picnic and the outdoor concerts <laughs> when i wanted to impress the girl that's right yeah, it's also quite aff affordable for a college student. So it was very okay. affordable. <laughs> um, uh, the the Mid Atlantic region, um, and I, I know that I've been told by many a winemaker that I tend to 
paint things too too broad a brush because everything is so pocketed and regional. But if you're going to describe the wine of the mid-Atlantic region, um, how, how would you describe it? What kind of characteristics would you say that uh, the the wines had? And you can, you know, if you have to split it up into categories, that's fine. Uh, first off, I, I would say it's it's not the wine you remember it was. Um, and, and I say that because, you know, when, when I first moved here, um, oh, 30 years ago now, um, when I moved here 30 years ago, uh, we went out one weekend to, you know, one of these wine festivals out 66 somewhere. Um, and we would walk around trying the wines and they were very, very sweet. Um, you know, and, and we just, we were, we were getting away from the sweet wines. And so, you know, we just didn't want to do those sweet wines anymore. So we kind of went away from, you know, those were mainly Virginia wines. There were a couple, I think, of Maryland or in there as well. But, you know, it's like, okay, it's just not, um, it's too sweet for us, you know. And, and I, I stayed away for many, many years. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of my friends here said, no, you got you to try this. You got to try some of these newer wines, you know, and, you know, the, the quality is coming way up. And so, you know, about, I'm going to say 10 years ago or so, um, it's okay, well, let's, let's go and, and try a couple more, right? And so we went out um, to the Northern Virginia corridor out 66, as you know, there's, you know, a couple dozen wineries um, not too far off 66. And, you know, we went into two or three the first day and they're like, you know what? These are not bad. These are, you know, some of them are very good. We came home with bottles, you know, and, uh -huh. and to me, if I bring home a bottle, that means I actually liked it. You know, I, I yeah. got rid of that mercy buying a long time ago. I'm not afraid to go into a, a winery, taste through the flights and say, yep, yeah, no, thank you. And walk out. Um, it's my money. I'm not going to, if I don't like it, I'm not going to buy it. Let somebody else buy it. But if, you know, if I, if I do like it, I'm more than happy to support and buy bottles. Um, you know, and now, you know, the the state and i'm talking about virginia in particular but i think there's also spillovers into um uh, maryland pennsylvania and north carolina you're starting to see a lot of that you know this region is growing you know when you say mid-atlantic we used you know i think here in dc we tend to think dmv but you know the reality is it goes all the way from new york to georgia right and right um and the quality has just been growing tremendously um and i think one because you're starting the winemakers started to realize like, uh, yeah, you just can't grow Cabernet Franc or Chardonnay everywhere, right? And I think that's when they initially came, started planning, that's what they planted because that's what sold, right? You know, if you look to the marketplace, you go to your giant, you know, you're gonna see a lot of Chardonnay, a lot of Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, but then um, they found out that, well, you know, that's probably not the best grape for this, this region, you know? And then they started planning um, in Virginia, you know, Viognier, right? Viognier tends to do very well in Virginia. Cabernet Franc does very well. Tanat, Petit Verdot, Petit Mansang. So we're seeing all these other ones that um, are doing very well in this region. And, you know, again, from North Carolina all the way up into New York, you're seeing some of these things growing now. And the, the, they're, they're good. And the winemakers have gone through training um, and the states have put in money to help back the viticulture. And, you know, uh, Virginia now offers viticulture classes through some of the uh, community colleges. So people are, ha are being able to go into the industry, you know, right out of school, you know, from high school, go learn all about viticulture and don't have to, you know, save off and go off to UC Davis or anything like that anymore. You can stay here in this region and become educated. Uh, I know Pennsylvania also offers some courses and I think North Carolina does as well. Uh, 
Um, and that's always a good sign when, when you know, the universities are beginning to back your industry. Um, and the winemakers, of course, you know, the, many of them in, in this region have studied and have done harvests abroad. Um, and uh, not just abroad, but, you know, in, in New York or in Texas or Washington, California, Australia, you know, so they're, they bring all these other techniques. And I think now we're, we're seeing the, the fruits of the labor that's like, you know what, you can make quality wines in Virginia. Um, and we're seeing them all the time. You know, the Governor's Cup in Virginia is, is wonderful. Um, the Maryland um, also has Governor's Cup. Um, and, and a couple of years ago, I started working uh, with several friends. With um, They um, are on the board of the uh, Atlantic Seaboard Wine Association. I've been honored to, you know, been asked to, to judge their competition a couple of times. You know, so these wines are really, really coming into their own. Um, and, you know, they're going to start, especially as we start seeing all these different climate issues in, in other parts of the world, you know, where people buy their wine from is going to change as well. Yeah. You know, I, you know, spoke to, uh, had the pleasure of speaking to uh, Jim Law at, at Linden mm -hmm. on the, on the program uh, a couple of weeks back. And, you know, he's been doing this forever here. And I was asking him about the, the land here. I was like, is there any area in Virginia or Maryland that, you know, are there, are there still plots of land that could be had to grow grapes? And he was saying, yes. I mean, there, we haven't even scratched the surface, <laughs> really, that they, you know, so who knows? Maybe I, I love to support the the smaller vineyards and I don't want to, you know, I don't want somebody big to come in and, and, and make it tougher for them. But I also know that, you know, as a region, it, it won't hurt to have somebody who can produce enough grapes and enough wine so that they can just it can be distributed a little bit right no. i mean that's the thing you know out you know really the the, the dmv you know, wines are not that well known out of this area right um i know the Lanx seaboard association do, does take the wines out um to the west coast every year and kind of do a road show of the wines there um and i've actually seen we were in scotland um, on a whiskey tour. And um, one of the restaurants we had dinner at did have Virginia wines on, on the menu. And it was, um, I was shocked. And I was, you know, I called to my A over and said, um, what's this? <laughs> and so, did, did you find out how that happened? I mean, it sounds sounds like that, you know, my thought would be they must know somebody personally. They must have a personal was, relationship. Yeah, the owner had come over to the U.S. And, and had been in D.C. for, you know, I guess, to, you know, for tourism, you know, just uh -huh. around and I guess went out to a winery or had it, had it with dinner or something and really liked it. So went out and bought a couple of cases and brought them back. And, you know, nice. and so he was able to put them in the restaurant, you know, um, they said they weren't selling very well because nobody was like, well, what's this Virginia? You know, it was like, is one of those colonies or something? I don't know. So. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the, that's the thing I was I, go, to go back to your, your video. I'll keep plugging your video. <laughs> but you guys watch them. They're really good. And the, and the guy, you know, they were talking about a, a Shannon, I believe. And you, again, please correct me if I'm wrong. And you asked us, somebody asked about a price point. I guess you asked about a price point. He said $14 for one of them. And I was like, how, you know, if you, if you're looking at the South African, yeah, okay. If that's $14 wholesale or in the, in the store, let's just say it's on a menu. And you look on it and it's like 35 bucks, say, in a restaurant. You know, a Virginia wine, a Virginia white is going to probably be like 65, 70 bucks on the menu. And you're going right. to say, mm. 
you know, it's kind of hard. It's just, I, I, I feel for them. I mean, the American, and I don't, I don't want to get on, on the restaurants right now, because I know most of them are having major, major difficulties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, drinking wine in a restaurant abroad is very different from drinking wine in the restaurant in the U.S., right? And, mm. and the price points are very, very different. Where I, when we're abroad, I have no problem ordering wine with dinner because, you know, I'll pay 30 bucks for a $25 bottle, right? Mm. Um, but in the U.S., you know, you're paying maybe 50, 60 bucks for a $25 bottle. And it's just like, well, it's not a $60 bottle, <laughs> you know? Right. I understand there are costs, you know, I'm I'm an economist. I know about all the costs that that go into maintaining the wine list and everything. Um, But, you know, the the lower the price point, the more people will drink wine, which means the more you can bring in and the lower your costs will get, right? And and in Europe, they have wine. Well, hell, we have, you know, we'll have mimosas with breakfast and then we'll have a bottle of wine or two with lunch and then we'll sit down for dinner with a couple of bottles. And then, you know, after dinner, we'll do some digestives so yeah yeah i'll have to i'll have to do that the majority of my experience in europe is in eastern europe because at at, at one time i my i had a relationship with somebody who's lithuanian and um so the you know <laughs> the the imbibing on that side of the continent is mostly distilled spirits yes <laughs> So there were, you know, I didn't have the, you know, the wine experience. I've never been to Italy before. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to, or Spain. So uh, I need to make those trips, especially, and I, I, I made a note of this. Uh, one of the wines that I really like, oh, well, I like Tanat, which is being grown here. And, and I like high tannin wine. So I like Barolo. Oh, yes. And is, is that, um, and I don't, you know, I think the only Barolo I've seen has been from, Italy. I mean, is it like, is it being grown anywhere in the United States or is it like champagne? It can't be Barolo unless it comes from Italy. I don't know. Um, I try to remember because Italy has like 50,000 different grapes, right? It, it's, right. it's really bizarre. And most of them are Sangiovese. So it's basically the same grape, but it's just a light, slightly different clone and it's grown on the next hill. So it's not the same as this other one. Um, so you certainly will see Sangiovese in the U.S. Uh, you know, there's, mm-hmm. I think there's one or two in Virginia. There's quite a few out in um, uh, Sonoma. So you can find, um, and even some in Texas. So you certainly can find Italian varietals um, growing more and more in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I, you, you may be right. I, I would have to look. But, you know, Barolo may be a protected name, you know, like Champagne. Yeah. Um, that it can you know, can only be called Barolo if it's grown in the Barolo region. So yeah, yeah. You mentioned Texas. I I, I didn't get a chance to. I was uh, went down to Austin a couple years ago, and uh, I had it on the itinerary. Never got to it. There were a couple of wineries down there. I was like, wow, a Texas winery. I'm really intrigued, but I never got out there to check them out. I don't even know if I've had a Texas wine before. It's uh, so I'm from San Antonio originally. So. Oh, okay. um, I, I was actually there this year. Um, um, we were planning to open up some day tours out of San Antonio and Austin into the Texas Hill Country, which is in between San Antonio and Austin, which is where a lot of the wineries are. Um, and so we were trying to, we were exploring. I was talking with wineries and drivers and that kind of thing. Um, of course, all that's post- postponed right now. So. Right, right. But um, there are some good wineries there um, and a lot of good breweries and distilleries as well. You know, um, mm-hmm. Tito's there is are. there. Um, 
I would expect Texas to have some good distilleries. Yes. <laughs> I would expect that. Um, okay. Uh, I want to give you a, a chance to, to, to talk more about uh, what you in the works for uh, a life well drunk. And I know maybe it's hard to plan nowadays, but before one more question before, sure. is there an, a, 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 an area, a region, a wine region that is, that you have not had the opportunity to visit that uh, if you could, you know, money not being an object or anything being an object or time, not even COVID, not even being an object and you could go, is there one that you could, you would go to that you haven't been to? Um, so yeah, we've, we've not done a lot in France um, mm. or Spain. I mean, we've done, you know, uh, the, the Barcelona regions, you know, uh, the Priorat and the Benedes, um, but I would love to hit, you know, the Rioja. Um, I love Tempranillos. I love the Riojas. And um, we have some friends there. So, you know, just waiting for the opportunity to get there. Um, and, you know, since we, we partner with a lot of locals when we go on these, because they know the the secret places to get the great wines, you know, and best dinners and that kind of thing. Um, and so we will be doing more in um, Italy. Um, Sicily is one I've not been to that I have a lot of guests who want to join me, um, but we've been, I like to go first to make sure that the experience is going to live up to right. what I sell. Um, right. You know, so um, uh, we were supposed to go again this year and and, and did not make it. Um, so I'll, we'll do some of those, um, what we call exploratory tours, um, hopefully, you know, starting late summer in 21, so. Okay, all right, well, um... I will put in the, in the show notes, as I do with all my guests, you know, I'll have a link to your, your website. And if you want to get in touch with John, there'll be a, you know, you can do it through there. Email will be there or whatever he would like to give me so he can contact him. But is there anything now, uh, again, I know it's tough. Do you have anything that's in the works or uh, that people might want to check we into? You have three tours booking for 2021. Um, starting in September, actually the first one sold out. So I only have two tours left um, and it's going to be to South Africa, uh, which is one of my favorites. Um, you, you were watching the, the Brewer Watts uh, uh -huh. video and we're, you know, we're going to meet with him. And so that will begin um, the next one available sometime in mid September. Um, I can get the exact dates out, um, but we do have, I think one or two spots left on each of the, the two remaining tours. Then in the um, in the spring or late spring, early summer of 22, we are doing a um, um, Czech, uh, Czech Austria Hungary tour. So we'll be hitting some of the some of the um, great wines there. You know, Austria and Hungary um, and Czech all have great wines. So we'll be visiting the three capitals, actually Prague, Vienna, um, and Budapest. Um, and so there's great food, there's great culture, there's great history, um, and some great wines to go with it as well. And, you know, one thing I, that intrigued me about your, your groups is that you, that you keep it, you know, there's not a, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a limited seating. There's not, you know, yeah. you're not going to be going on a huge tour bus type of thing. Is it, mm -hmm. please, how many people do you limit it to? We, we try we haven't been over 10 in a long time. I try to keep it to 10 and under, uh -huh. um, you know, and it um, generally you have to be of legal age because we do drink. Um, 
and then um, yeah, we, we usually get like those little Mercedes Sprinter vans that hold 14 people. So I figure eight to 10 people in those vans is plenty comfortable. You know, you don't have to sit next to somebody if you don't want to. There's lots of room. Um, people buy a lot of wine, so there's lots of room to put the wines in, in the back, you know, as we're driving around and everything. Um, so we try to keep it very informal. Again, I don't want the, the wines experience to be only for the, you know, very special people. The, you know, I want them to be accessible by everybody. And we go in and we have group dinners and, you know, we'll sit after we get home and in the evenings at the hotel, we'll have a little happy hour just to talk about our day and, you know, what you like, what you didn't like. And and since we're so small, I can generally sometimes um, switch things up fairly quickly. You know, if somebody... Um, last time um, in South Africa, somebody fell in love with a pinotage we had at dinner. So I, I called up the driver and said, hey, can you get us into that winery tomorrow afternoon? And we were able to get in there. You know, we had to sit way in the back because they were very full, but we pulled some strings to get in there. And, the, you know, they were like, oh, this is the one we had at dinner. You know, I said, yeah, you know, because we're small enough, I can do that. You know, if I had 25, 50, 100 people, you're doing exactly what everybody else is doing, no matter what. So. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to because that's what intrigued me so much about it, and I thought that the audience would want to know too because um, the thought of you know loading up three uh, the zipper buses like they go up to New York <laughs> and and you know it, it, with a bunch of people in Hawaiian shirts might not be exactly what we're talking about. So. No, it's um, uh, Hawaiian shirts, but it is not going to be the big bus. <laughs> yeah, 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 I, yeah. Really, I want to disparage Hawaiian shirts. I have a few that I love. <laughs> So uh, listen, with that, John, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show. Uh, I certainly learned a lot in this short time here. And, uh, you know, I hope that uh, all of you listening uh, enjoyed it as well, because we don't talk about this stuff a lot. Mostly we, we talk about, you know, a particular winery and what they're making there. So. Howard, thank you so much for having us on. And um, any questions I can answer for you or any of your guests, you know, I'll, I'll send you all the information. They can reach out to me and I'm happy to help wherever I can. So fantastic. Okay, John, have a good day. Thanks. You too, Howard. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that's another show in the books. I had a great time speaking with Mr. John Sporing. If you're interested in speaking with John about his wine tours, please go to the show notes. There's a link to his website where you can learn more about his business and how to contact him. I'd like to thank John for taking time out of his very busy schedule to be a guest on my show. John, you're always welcome to come on and discuss all things fine and even not so fine wine. I'm all about promoting the craft beverage industry in the DMV because it's some of the best in the nation. At least that's what I think. And if you agree, please share the podcast. Tell your friends about it. The more it grows, the more I can get the word out about the craft beverage culture in the DMV. And that's good for everybody. This show was written, produced, birthed, and screwed up a little bit by yours truly, Howard Fletcher. I'll be back next week with another craft beverage maker in the DMV to introduce you. I know there's a ton of media out there you could be listening to besides me. And so that's why I work so hard to bring you the content that I do. I truly appreciate your time investment in listening to these podcasts. Thanks for listening. Come back next time. And remember, always have a designated driver so I'll be able to see you next time. Isficata. You have been listening to Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher, part of the Fletcher Podcast Group. You can reach Howard at his website, barreltastingpod.com. I'm Asia Blue. Thanks for listening. See you next time.